man. What an exciting week it has been. Um, I can't tell how many times I was told, you're getting slimed. I mean, like the kids were pumped about that missions goal and about sliming Pastor Chad. Um, I am so excited uh, about just the joy of all these kids and, and all these things. But I'm telling you, one of the things that excites me so much, and this is where it's so important, is we know, we know a lot of statistics now. There's been a lot of data that's been collected and everything, especially as it relates to teenagers, okay? That, that teenagers, that as they have relationship with other adults in a local church and with a pastor, okay? So not only the senior pastor, but with a pastor in the church, um, that becomes a number one predictor of whether they're gonna continue in their faith in the college years. Right now, the statistic is that college students that, you know, a, 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 a kid that's maybe been in the youth group and then they get to college, one, it's only one out of five. So only 20% continue in their faith. Um, the other four usually either go through a time where they just aren't doing much of anything or they then go into a place where they say, I don't believe this anymore. But as we've looked at what's the data say, the data suggests that if students have relationships, have relationships with adults and with pastors in the church, they are far more likely, I'm almost three times more likely to continue in their faith in their college years. So can I just tell you, I don't think there's a family in here, a parent in here right now that's like, yeah, I hope they outgrow this. I hope that they get over this Jesus thing. I don't think that's why you're here. I don't think that's why you brought your kid to VBS this week. Um, I think it's because you really want it to stick. Well, let me tell you that the way that the faith really begins to go deep into the life of a child, and especially during those teenage years, is through relationships. I mean, that's really not that like crazy. I mean, like you know, when you really think about it, that's what makes most of us want to do the things that we want to do is relationships. I mean, a lot of you that really enjoy where you work, it's probably because of the relationships um, in that place. Um, a lot of you that like your neighborhood, it's probably because of the relationships that you have with neighbors. Uh, you that like to get together with your family, it's probably because you like your family and you, you, you honestly enjoy being with one another. Um, relationships become that glue. And so just know that that was part of what excited me so much this week was seeing our students. Um, so many Many of our high school students helping to lead the motions, even some of the guys getting up here and leading the motions, which I know is not always the, the most joyful thing uh, for guys to get up here, but they got up here and did this because they knew that it meant a lot to the kids. And so um, thank you for being a church that really is embracing what it means to be a multi-generational church because we want to be those who hand the faith down one generation to the next. Well, this morning, um, we're going to continue in our study through 1 Timothy. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bible. Um, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can probably find a Bible app pretty easily on your phone. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of the core convictions that we have as a church, if you're a guest today, um, there's several core convictions that really guide what we understand it means for us to be a biblically thriving church. And the first one for us is that for us to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture fed. Um, there, there's a lot of us that, you know, we're, we're ingesting Facebook or we're, we're ingesting, you know, um, uh, a news outlet, whether, you know, whatever your news choice is and all those things. And those things are getting into us. But we know that for the people of God and for the church of Christ to thrive, we've got to be scripture fed. And so every week we turn to God's word when we gather in this time in order to be a scripture fed church, because we are convinced that that is the healthiest way for us as God's people to grow. And so this morning we're going to be 
looking at chapter three, having just come through chapter two, but remember, we don't separate things out. So, so Paul's just been talking in chapter two about some of the things that keep the church from thriving. Um, he's talked about you know some of the the the, the conditions that can often be a distraction, whether that's a you know a, a fascination or kind of a fixation on our outward appearance, you know, and dressing up for church and all those things, and that becomes what church is all about is about the big to do that it is. Um, he says you know like that's a distraction. He talks about some of the conditions of our heart, anger and frustration, um, and, and instead of raising up hands and praise to God, he says you're kind of raising up your fist, ready to go at each other. And he says, that's not how it's supposed to be in the church. And so he's been dealing with these conditions. And then he moves straight into chapter three of what is the condition, therefore, of what the church needs to thrive. And, and it's no coincidence that it's going to be exactly what you expect, leadership. Who's supposed to be leading in the church? Um, who is supposed to be overseeing, which is the word we're going to see here, overseeing the care for God's church? And he's going to go into great detail about what that kind of person is. And so I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We always stand here at First Baptist um, when, we, when we read a passage of scripture like this because we're acknowledging something very specific, that this is God speaking to us. So just imagine a dignitary walking in the room right now. You'll probably stand to greet them or welcome them. We are standing in reverence of God, acknowledging this is not Chad's ideas about what makes the church work. This is God speaking to us about his church. And so hear the word of the Lord from chapter three. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. And how it speaks to us as a church about what sort of leadership the church needs in order to be biblically thriving. So Lord, please help us to heed your word today. May it be your word that comes to rest on our hearts and to occupy our minds. And may it be your word and your truth that leads us, Father, in righteousness and in justice and, Father, in all godliness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you can be seated. Now, at this point, you might think, man, this sermon has nothing to do with me because I'm not a pastor. I'm not an overseer, an elder. And so, you know, this doesn't really matter. Trust me, this sermon matters a lot for every church. This passage is, is very, very important for every congregation because it is by this criteria. So remember, this is Paul writing to Timothy who's trying to put things in order in a local church, a church in Ephesus. And he's saying to him, you know, 
Timothy, you need to take care of some of the unhealthy teaching that's going on. We saw that in chapter one. Um, he's already given us one trustworthy statement is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so you can see kind of this real core that Paul is establishing is these are trustworthy things that you need to like hang your hat on. That if you don't remember anything else today, remember this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now, most of us in this room would be saying, amen. I, I can believe that I can get behind that. But this is then where the test comes, right, of Paul's trustworthy sayings, because now we come to the second trustworthy saying. And what is it? If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. So this is the second trustworthy saying that Paul is now giving us. And so that should tell us something that just as important as this gospel reality is, is going to be those that contend for the gospel and represent the leadership of the church for the sake of the gospel in a local church. In this context, in Ephesus, and in our context, in New Orleans. And so Paul is writing and he's wanting you every one of you, I mean, just to understand this, that this is not a sermon where, where I'm gonna get up here and say, let me tell you all the good things that I'm doing in light of this passage. Let me give you demonstration after demonstration. But you should, for myself and any other pastor in your life, and you that are, that are guests today, maybe you're part of another church in our city, this is the, the passage that you should be saying, this is what a pastor is. And if a pastor is not in accordance with these things, then there needs to be those within the context of that local body to be able to, to bring those to light and then hopefully lead that pastor into righteousness or to remove that pastor. You say, that, is that serious? Absolutely. In fact, can I just tell you, the title I gave for this sermon today is Restoring a Noble Work. Because every time I open the newspaper, I see disgrace of this noble work called pastoring. I see article after article and scandal after scandal of those that are in positions of spiritual leadership abusing that spiritual leadership, of doing things in that position that they ought not to do. And so you should be very concerned for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of the church that you love and you're part of, that this passage be lived out and that this passage be the standard by which pastors are chosen. And so what we're gonna see today is really kind of four buckets. So a lot of times when I come to a passage of scripture like this, and I see lots of lists, okay? So you'll notice here in this text that Paul begins to dive into this noble work as he defines it is that he starts saying, must be above reproach, husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not excessive drinker. And it's just doom, 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 doom. And, and each one of these are important, but sometimes for me, it can be helpful to kind of create buckets, like things that, that all the smaller pieces go into because it gives me a handle to try to remember these things and to, and, to, and to hold on to it. And so that's my hope for us today is that these words that I'm gonna use are kind of derived from the text, but they're also a little bit distinct from the text so that they can become handles by which we hold things. And so what we're gonna see is that the noble work of being an overseer, and let me just stop for a second and do a little time out and say that the word overseer here is used interchangeably over in Titus Titus, which is another letter written by Paul, but not to Timothy, but to a guy named Titus about the same sort of work of putting things in order in, in the church in Crete to, to, to be able to help explain what an overseer must be. And then he immediately shifts in the same sentence into because an elder 
And so then we see the synonymous use of overseer and elder. But then you turn over to 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see overseer, elder, and pastor all being used in the same paragraph. And so what we begin to see, and this is a conclusion that many of us have drawn is in, through study of the New Testament, is that the words overseer, elder, and pastor are, are used in a very synonymous way. And, and they may actually be kind of like different facets on a diamond. You've got one diamond, you know, lady, if you've got a wedding band, you know, but, but it's got facets to it to where the light hits it from different angles. And so each one of those, maybe uh, those phrases, overseer, elder, and pastor may speak to different dimensions of this one thing. Here at First Baptist New Orleans, the, 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 the title that we use is pastor. And um, we think it's a clear one and it communicates kind of the, the caring role that a pastor should have in the life of a church. So it's important for us to acknowledge that different churches use different words. Here at First Baptist, we use the word pastor. And so the, the main idea today is the noble work of being an overseer, elder, pastor. And so I'm just gonna kind of lump those together because you know, recognizing they're used synonymously requires godly, number one, character. And then number two, conduct. Number three, care. And number four, caution. So all the words start with the letter C. So if you can remember the letter C, you're gonna have a good handle on remembering this passage and some of the content of it. So the, the character, the conduct, the care, and the caution, these godly aspects of what is needed. So let's look first at the character. Now, obviously each one of these pertains to character. Um, every one of them is speaking about kind of an internal condition of a person's life. I mean, just think about in your own life that whenever you've dealt with someone who you felt like was maybe not being completely honest in a situation, or, or you were dealing with someone that you just didn't really trust as much, what, what did you find yourself saying? I just kind of questioned their character. You know, like what, what's really going on on the inside, that there's some discrepancy between what I'm seeing on the outside and what seems to be on the inside, or that they're acting one way, acting nice and trustworthy on the outside, but really I'm kind of questioning the internal condition. So Paul speaks to that. Paul, Paul goes straight into the inner condition of a person because he's hopeful and believes that there's gonna be more correspondence between the internal when it's good with external good than just trying to conform through outward behavior and internal condition. So he dives right into the heart by saying this, he must be above reproach. And this idea of reproach is that there really shouldn't be anything in this pastor's life that would cause you to say, oh man, I, I didn't know that about him. I didn't know that he did this kind of thing. There, there shouldn't be anything in his life. You say, well, Chad, that could be a lot of things. That's right. It's kind of a blanket statement above reproach. So what that means in the life of a pastor is that a life of a pastor is often going to be one where you're having to make wise decisions about what to engage in and what to decline from. And that's a difficult thing because every culture is a little bit different when it comes to some of the things that might be reproachful. But rather than just leaving it kind of a blanket statement, big and broad, he moves into some of the specifics of what that character should be producing and what it should look like. He says, the husband of one wife. Now, this is important to understand is that in the first century context, while there was some polygamy that maybe wasn't as prevalent as some writers have made it to seem, but there were these relationships with, with, with concubines. And you say, well, what is a concubine? A concubine was kind of a 
functional wife, but you hadn't entered into the same marital relationship. So she didn't get all of the same rights as a wife. And you say, man, that sounds terrible. That's right. God never prescribed that sort of relationship in his word, either in the Old Testament or in the New. You say, but I see it in the Old Testament. It is never prescribed. So understand that, that this passage is elevating what has always been God's standard, is that God's standards, there will be a faithfully committed relationship of one husband and one wife, and, 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 and no other sexual relationships. And so it's important for us to see that he's elevating this. Now you say, well, what does that mean that someone who's a, a widower, someone that's lost their wife, if they're no longer married, they can't be a pastor? That would be an example of taking it further than what's written. That, that would be kind of like, well, I'm just gonna really tease this out as far as I can possibly go. And so therefore my wife, Cole, like if she were to pass, you know, somebody reading this very legalistically would say, well, you're no longer married. So you've either got to find a wife like really quick or quit you know, because we can't have you as our pastor anymore. We would say that that's not the intention of what Paul is writing here in this passage. And so the husband of one wife, now let me just say this real fast. Just because you don't divorce doesn't mean you have a healthy marriage. Can I just say that? Just because a person doesn't divorce doesn't mean that they have a healthy marriage. There's plenty of people who are doing things in their faithful marriage that are not very faithful to one another. It's not very healthy for that relationship. And so Paul is not just you know wanting to set the bar really low, he's setting it really high. In other words, uh, the church should be able to look at a marriage relationship and see something of the portrait of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter five of a husband laying down his life in love for his wife and the wife honoring and respecting and submitting to her husband. You say, man, yeah, this is really seeming very archaic language and all these things. These are biblical descriptions of what a thriving biblical marriage will look like. And so that ought to be on display in the life of a pastor. We continue to go through here. He says, self-controlled, self-controlled. You say, well, in what sphere? In all spheres. Uh, that a pastor should be self-controlled in all spheres. That means like what a pastor is eating, what a pastor is doing with his time. Um, when a pastor is angry, uh, you know, like that he is self-controlled in his anger. You know, all of these things are gonna be a manifestation of self-control. Sensible. Um, in, in other words, just, just uh, revealing a basic sensibility to things, that there's not the rashness of extremes you know, like that, you know, we're going to do all this or we're just going to go all this direction, you know, and these kind of the polarizations. If you want to see an example of that, just look at American politics. Um, many times American politics can be a time of strong extremes of, of, of not a very sensible approach to things where people are just trying to take the furthest stance that they can on something. Instead, a pastor in many ways is going to be saying, no, let's be sensible about this. Let's bring this back together. So if you have a pastor that seems to be just riding the wave of political agendas and things like that, you should be concerned and you should bring that to their attention. Sensible, respectable, meaning that they're, they're, they're gaining respect in all that they do, the way that they care for people. And many times, can I just tell you, it should be the two extremes of life, the, the youngest among us and the oldest among us where you should be looking at the behavior of a pastor and how do they treat the most vulnerable? How do they, how do they care and love children? Is it appropriate? Is it with attention? Is it, is it with the sort of care that we would imagine Christ have had when he says, don't keep the children from coming to me? 
And then also with the elderly. Are they the ones that, that take time to care for the most senior among us and even for those that are no longer able to come to church? You know, we have members here at First Baptist New Orleans that are no longer able to come. In fact, uh, some of you might be watching even this morning or, or later today, and we want you to know that you are not forgotten, that you are loved, and that you are cared for. In fact, we have an entire group of our deacons here at First Baptist. We'll be looking at our deacon um, ministry and through the passage that's coming up in verses 8 through 13 next week. But, but there's a group of our deacons that they're, they are devoted solely to caring for widows and for homebound members of our church. Um, they go and they visit, they care for them, they demonstrate the love of Christ for them. They are not forgotten. And that's how it ought to be because many times it's easy, right, for a pastor. Um, and, you know, some of the language that gets used in church circles, and I'm just like taking you behind the veil, is, you know, what's called high capacity members. You know, what's that mean? Rich members. You know, like th there's this insider language that sometimes gets used. And you know what? It can be easy for a pastor to begin to be respectable to those who have higher income those who maybe will be able to give more. And can I tell you, that should be unacceptable. That you should be able to look at your pastor and say, it doesn't matter any condition of a person, whether they're the wealthiest or the poorest, whether the youngest or the oldest, whether they are in the prime of their life or the end of their life, it doesn't matter. He shows them the same respect as he does anyone else. That's what James cautions against, is that you give a seat of honor to the wealthy, but you tell the poor to sit over here. That shouldn't be the way respectable treatment is demonstrated in respect for all people. Respectable. Paul continues on. He says, hospitable. That, that idea of hospitality is not just that, you know, well, yeah, anybody can come to church here, but not anybody can come to my house. No, the idea of hospitality in the first century would have been the willingness to open up not only the church building on a Sunday morning because they didn't have church buildings or some of them maybe were gathering um, at synagogues. And then we, it's not until later we see the formation of buildings, you know, where churches would gather, but instead it was sharing of your own life that you would invite people in, into your home in order to share life together. Now, obviously uh, I would invite you all over for lunch today. We wouldn't all fit in my house, um, you know, but one of the things that even in my own life that I have been blessed by and why I've seen the beauty and the goodness of God's word with hospitality is the benefit that it is to our family. Right now on and every other uh, Wednesday occasion, there's been a group of young adults. Um, that's one of the things that's very important to me is that next generation of leaders, those that next generation of church leaders and those who are gonna be leaders in the church to be able to spend time with them, to learn from them, to grow with them because they are just hungry and and sometimes that becomes infectious in my life because I want to keep growing. I want to keep learning. And so there's nothing better than for me to get around somebody that's hungry for the word uh, to be able to be infected with that. And so we have them into our home. And can I tell you one of the beautiful things of God's design when we open up our lives and we open up our homes to one another is the benefit and the blessing that it can be to the other people than just you that live in the house. Um, my, my daughter and my, and my son, my two oldest, they love that every other Wednesday because they join in the conversation with young adults that are a little bit older than them, but they're part of conversations where we're talking about real things, talking about same-sex marriage and about homosexuality and like, man, how do we deal with these sort of things in our culture today without seeming hateful, but also not compromising on the truth of God's word? Uh, what do we do about some of these difficult passages in the Bible like we just went through in chapter two? And so we'll spend hours sometimes just sitting at the table, opening up the word of God and just talking about it. 
And can I tell you who's been blessed by that? Me, me, to hear from these young adults that are growing in their faith and understanding the words. You better hear when my wife begins to share and to learn from her wisdom and her experience in God's word. And just to have that time together and then to hear my daughter say that Wednesday night is her favorite time of the week. Hospitality's good. We need to rekindle that. We need to begin the process of inviting people into our lives and into our table because it is good. And it's not just reserved for pastors, but we'll get there in just a moment. And then he moves into this final criteria of able to teach. And this becomes then this central idea of what it means to be engaged in the work of pastoring is to teach the people of God that it becomes a central core aspect to this. You say, well, well, Chad, that's only one part of what you do. Every once in a while, I get the joke, you know, it must be nice to have a job where you only work 30 minutes a week. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, you know, but, but it is one of these things. Listen, it takes me a little more time than the average, you know, cookie to, to prepare these things, okay? Like, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. So it's work. It's work to get ready uh, for a sermon so that I don't get up here and say the wrong things, that I uh, communicate a false truth about God's word but here's the reality. You're building your life, not on Chad. You're not building your life on membership at FBNO. You are building your life on Christ and Christ has ordained you to build your life upon his word. Like that's how Jesus, not any person, this is how Jesus has determined to speak with and to lead you is through his word. And so that's why then it becomes so important that the pastoral ministry of the church is through the preaching and teaching of the word because this is what God has ordained. This is what is consistent. This is what unifies us with the, with the cloud of witnesses that have come before us is believing and following and worshiping the Lord according to his word. Not saying, well, wait, man, we graduated from that stuff. That stuff's old, that stuff's archaic. You know, like we, we kind of come to a, a, a new level, a new enlightenment. Can I tell you the enlightenment was not that enlightening when it came to the matters of God. And that's important for us to understand is that we are called by God into his word, not above it. And so it is in the life of any pastor. But can I tell you, so what's it look like? Who's a godly example that somebody like myself can keep my eyes on in the context of a city, even like New Orleans? There's gonna be a picture that comes up on the screen right now of a pastor that I love and respect, Fred Luter. Fred Luter is the pastor of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, Franklin Avenue is a dear sister church to our church here in our city. And Pastor Luter, this picture right here with his, with his bride, Elizabeth, um, they are in, standing in front of the, the, what is now the Fred Luter Student Center at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So if you drive down Gentilly Boulevard, right where it starts to turn into Chef Mature Highway, you will see proudly across the building, the Fred Luter Jr. Student Center. And it was because this is a man who embodies what it means to be a faithful pastor, that he embodies what it means to be respectable. And can I tell you how I've seen that is not just from the, the front, not, not just from the, his presence. He's an incredible preacher, a fiery preacher, one who just really expounds the word of God. But it's through our local association of churches where there's a group of us that are on an administrative committee where we're having to contend with sometimes difficult matters at a small table, having to make leadership decisions. And it is in those contexts 
that my respect for Pastor Luter has grown tremendously is I have witnessed his kindness and his respect for all people. I have never heard Pastor Luter utter a negative word about anyone, anyone. Even when we're talking about the most difficult situations, Pastor Luter and I've shared this before, he shared that when he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, that it happened over and over and over again, that as a black pastor, being the first African-American to serve as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that dedication of that building, that is the first Southern Baptist institutional building that's named in honor of an African-American. And that's right here in New Orleans. And we thank God for that. But can I tell you something unfortunate is that as Pastor Luter would receive an invitation from a, 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 a predominantly white church pastor, and would say, Pastor Lou, we want you to come as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to come preach at our church. And Pastor Lou would say, okay, I've got it on my calendar. The number of times that he would then get a phone call from that pastor and say, Pastor, I am so sorry. I'm, I'm absolutely embarrassed to say this, but, but I'm gonna have to cancel that request because our church has made it clear that we won't be having someone who's black preach in our church. That's 2012. For anybody that says racism is a thing of the past, I invite you to go on down the street and talk with Pastor Luter about whether racism is dead. But in those moments, this man who could have said, man, I am done with the Southern Baptist Convention. I am out. I am, I, you know, all these people, bigots and hypocrites and racists and all that. You know what he did? He said, that's all right. That's all right. He said, God had other plans for me. God had other plans. And I watched as this man continued to persevere and to press on and to lead us with great dignity and respect. And can I tell you as a young pastor, my respect and what I, what I was learning from him and what it meant to be respectable was increasing and increasing and increasing. And I'm so thankful for his son, Chip Luter, who came and preached here earlier this year, who's a chip off the old block, one who is also following in those footsteps of what it means to be a faithful and respectable pastor. Second, in addition to character, the noble work of being an overseer, elder, pastor requires godly conduct. And we kind of move into that. And obviously, remaining faithful to your wife, that's essential and has already been talked about. But notice that then Paul kind of shifts and he talks about some kind of different aspects. And he talks about in verse three, not an excessive drinker. Now, I realize that when we get into in a context like this, where we say, you know, well, then probably the best idea is not to drink at all. That, that some, for some people, that's gonna be the best decision. And, and, and certainly contextually, you need to know your context as a pastor. But again, this is tying back into that dimension of self-control. That this is a person that knows when to stop. This is a person that, that that's not what they're depending on at the end of a hard day to get them over the final few hours of a hump. This is not an excessive drinker. Number two, not a, not a bully, but gentle. Not a bully, but gentle. Can I just camp out there for a moment? Because bullying is this real thing. Uh, bullying is something that schools talk about. In fact, there's even a website that's been created by the governing, by the government called stopbullying.gov. And let me tell you what, how it defines bullying, okay? So this is important for us to know, and especially for you that have children, because this can take place even in, at a very early age. Bullying is unwanted, aggressive behavior among school-aged children that involves a real or perceived power and balance. The behavior is repeated and has the potential to be repeated over time. Both kids who are bullied 
and who bully others have serious lasting problems. Let me just like insert here because Paul says, you know what? It's not just about kids. That, that bullying can be the behavior of an adult and can even be the, the behavior of a man who you're considering or maybe is even now serving as your pastor. So just drop this in. Um, bullying is unwanted aggressive behavior among pastors that involves real or perceived power imbalance. Um, the, um, the behavior is repeated and has the potential to be repeated over time. Both pastors and churches who bully or are bullied have serious lasting problems. And to that, I say, absolutely, because I've seen it. I've seen it where, pow- where, where pastors come in and you say, well, Chad, what does that look like? It looks like when you get into the committee structure oftentimes, where a pastor comes in and says, I'm the pastor and this is what we're doing. And looks around the room with pointed finger. And everybody says, okay, I guess he's the pastor. I guess that's what we're doing. That's an example of bullying. Throwing around that improper balance of, of power. Saying, hey, are you the pastor or am I the pastor? And putting people in their place with kind of these power moves and, 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 and checking people. And you say, well, Chad, God's word does talk about the authority. That's right, it sure does. It talks about the authority that a pastor should have, but notice how the pastor uses it. Not lording it over them but caring for them gently as Christ does his own sheep. Because ultimately, we're not the good shepherd. We're the under shepherd. And so it is the chief shepherd that sets the pace on how we deal with difficulty. Notice what it says, not a bully, but gentle. There ought to be a gentleness that characterizes a pastor. So for any of you, when you're considering a church and you're watching the way of a pastor, there ought to be this kindness that is embodied in them. Not the, not the, uh, the, 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 the mat on the floor that everybody walks over, that, that, that essentially there's no leadership there, but that there's a gentleness about that pastor when he has to correct and when he has to lead, that he's not doing it in this power position and bullying others with intimidation. Not quarrelsome, not greedy. And we look and we see that there ought not to be the, the draw into the Twitter debates, that there ought not to be the, the draw into whatever the, the latest tension is. And just, man, I just want to get a piece of the action and get into the fight of whatever the current you know, debate is in blogs or in Twitter or in Facebook or something like that, that that's an unhealthy tendency. And listen, pastors can bend and contend toward these things, not a quarrelsome and then not greedy that there ought to be a generosity that characterizes a pastor's life, that there ought not to be a love of money that characterizes a pastor's life. And can I just tell you that that continues, just like in the life of all of us, pastors in the United States of America live in the most wealthy nation or one of the most wealthy nations in the world. And so therefore, it does make sense that pastors also, because of the unbelievable materialism that surrounds us are going to be tempted in the same ways that we all are. You see, what's so interesting is that if I asked and did a survey right now, I said, who in this room is rich? Very few hands are going to go up because not a single American considers themselves wealthy. Yet we are the most wealthy nation or one of the most wealthy nations in the world. We experience a quality of life that almost no one in human history has experienced except for like emperors and and kings and queens and those sort of things. And so it's important for us to understand that we have been like kind of, we're, we're in this materialistic culture 
And that's important for pastors to know too, that we can get drawn into that, the desire for more and more things to really be our identity, to be our comfort, and it becomes an idol in our lives. So we're looking at all of these things about the the conduct of what they must be. And then we see that it's coming out of a heart of character, but then this leads us into this third dimension of care. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Now, it's important here to acknowledge that what can sometimes happen in a passage like this is that some pastors can read it that I'm the dad and you're the children, okay? That's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, he even delineates it in that he defines what my home life, me as a dad, ought to look like, that that I ought to to be managing or leading my, my family competently and having my children under control, meaning they're not in just like all out rebelliousness, you know, like against my authority and about my leadership in the home. And you say, Chad, does that mean your kids are always perfect? No, my children are just like your children and just like we all were as children. We all have hearts in need of the saving work of Jesus Christ, okay? So, so no, it's like it's not that my children are gonna be the best children or they're gonna be the ones that never make a mistake. That's not the standard that's being established here. Instead, what's being established here, remember who's being spoken to? The pastor, the overseer. How are you gonna handle it? How are you gonna achieve this respect in the home? Well, it's by doing all of these things before. You know, it really was something great. Thank you for the time away this week. Cole and I celebrated 20 years of marriage um, on Wednesday. And so thank you for the time away last week to be able to, to go to the beach for a few days, just she and I, while the kids got to spend time with grandparents. But as we came back and we had VBS all week, and then on Wednesday was our anniversary, we were doing a, a time of family worship where we were just, we just opening up God's word and actually God had used a sermon while we were away to really restart that because I had kind of fallen out of the habit of doing family worship where we just open God's word and we pray together. That's all that family worship looks like at the Gilbert household is I just open the Bible, read a passage, we talk about it, and then we pray for each other. And it's always a, do we go to the right or to the left? You know, and people move in because they want to pray for a certain person, all that kind of stuff. But it was our anniversary and what, what it just, it was such a blessing to me and just a reminder to me of the goodness of God's word. Um, when, when we got around and it was Grayson's turn to pray, he said, God, thank you for mom and dad. And I just pray that they will continue to be faithful to one another. Faithfulness. What did Paul say? He says, a husband of one wife, faithful, faithful. And that that's a benefit and a blessing to my children. You wanna know how I help establish respect in my home? It's by continuing to be faithful to my wife. And that's only by God's grace because I realized that I'm a sinner saved by grace. That first trustworthy says, you know, trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners like me. That's true, that's needed. His work is on me and I'm thankful for my children. But notice what Paul does is he says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, in other words, how to lead his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He doesn't say, if he doesn't know how to keep his children under authority, how's he gonna keep the church under his authority? He doesn't, he doesn't use that delineation. And that's important because sometimes the strategies that parents will use in order to keep their children under their authority, pastors will come in and begin to do with the church, to treat the church like children. I don't know any adults that like to be treated like children. 
You know, like that's just not a strategy. But sometimes that's what pastors fall into. And some pastors develop this thing of, I'm the dad and you're all my kids. And so there has to be a uniformity that exactly how I do it at my house, that's how you're gonna do it at your house. If I say it's okay to watch at my house, then it's okay for you to watch at your house. If it's okay for my family to go there, then it's okay for your family to go there. And we begin to do it in this unhealthy way when that's not what Paul is driving at. That's not the, the, the communication that he has here for us. And that's important for us to know because sometimes I see in different pockets, especially like with certain uh, networks and things like that, a little bit more of a push toward that of the, the pastor is the father of the congregation. And can I just tell you, you got one father and I ain't him. Okay, we have one heavenly father. Paul's real clear about this. And so that's an important distinction that we need to make. And he says, because he has to take care of God's church. Now, if you wanna know about this word, take care, what's that look like? Well, this word, and I love that it's only used in one other place in the Bible, this word that Paul uses. And I don't know, I wish I could say with certainty that he had this in mind, but we know that Paul knew Luke and it's Luke who uses this word when he recounts the story of the Good Samaritan. And and what is it that the Good Samaritan does? The Good Samaritan is the one that after multiple people have passed by a man that's been robbed and stripped of his clothes and beaten almost to death and left on the side of the road to die, that uh, uh, a religious leader walks by, don't have time for that. Another religious leader walks by, don't have time for that. But then finally we have this Samaritan. And you have to understand the Samaritans weren't looked at very kindly by Jewish people. They were kind of this, this half Jew that was actually even worse than that. And so it was like, you know, there was a lot of tension there. And so Jesus takes the person that everybody else would have despised. And he says, this is the good example for all of you to follow. I mean, right now it'd be like, you know, it's like, you know, an American walks by and then maybe, you know, some other country we have a good relationship and then a North Korean walks by. I mean, like that's the tension. You're like, whoa, okay, that's a little jarring. Yeah, that's what Jesus is doing. He says a North Korean walks by in this moment and he sees this U.S. citizen on the side of the road and he cares for him. And what does he do? He picks him up, he bandages his wounds, he puts him on his own animal, which means he's not got a, he's got to walk rather than ride. And then he takes him at the expense of his own pocket. He pays for this man to be cared for. He takes care of him at at his own expense. He's the one that notices the ones that are wounded and hurting. He's the one that that cares for them out of his own personal inconvenience, out of his own personal pocket. He cares for those individuals. You say, well, what does that look like? Here at First Baptist New Orleans, we have a group of pastors that, that truly I see embodying this, but there's one pastor that I wanna mention today to you that, that I see this example of over and over and over again, it's Pastor Bob Moore. So many of you know Pastor Bob. He works with our senior adults most, mostly, but he's always working behind the scenes in order to make things happen. The fact that we're in a room right now that's you know air conditioned and all those kind of things is because he and Johnny Parker, who's right back over here, and Alcana, who we're so thankful for, um, they work behind the scenes to make these things happen. But I've watched over and over and over again as I've, as I've walked into Bob's office to ask a question, he's on the phone with one of you that's going through a difficult time, having a time of prayer with you, um, visiting those that are sick, visiting those that are homebound. I mean, of really caring for people, but then also being the first one in and the last one out because he wants to be sure that this is a good experience where things go right for you as the church when you gather 
and when you then do ministry in our city. And so I'm thankful for pastors like Bob Moore that demonstrate the care, the care of Christ. But then Paul concludes with this caution. He says that there needs to be a godly character about a pastor, godly conduct, godly care, and then a godly caution. And look how he ends here. He says he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Can I tell you one of the risks that pastors always run is conceit, is conceit. Uh, you know, the, the reality is that pastors have to get up and they, they have to preach. And sometimes, and listen, I'm just, we're just gonna have like real conversation right now, okay? So this is just us talking, okay? So like this isn't me getting on to anybody, but sometimes what people can do is they can treat this like an episode of American Idol. And it's like, you know, did I give them, you know, the thumbs up or the thumbs down today? You know, like, you know, did I like the sermon or didn't I like the sermon? You know, and it's kind of this, you know, so, what that can do, can I just tell you the negative impact that that can have on a pastor is it makes you want to please the people. And can I tell you one thing that God's word cautions pastors against over and over again? It's pleasing people. It's, it's, I'm supposed to be pleasing God. So you say, well, so Chad, does that mean you need to preach boring sermons that aren't engaging? I don't think so. I think God's word is so engaging. And I think it's so interesting that it would be a shame for me to come up here and then butcher it by making it seem like a a boring document that has no relevance for your life. Instead, what does it look like for me to be faithful? For me to just simply preach the word. In other words, notice what we've done this morning. We just walked through a passage of scripture and I'm expounding on it and maybe applying it and maybe illustrating it like with Pastor Luter or Pastor Bob Moore, but I'm not adding to it. I'm not replacing it. I'm not saying, well, that was a good thought. Let me tell you what I think. And then getting up here and, and, and just going on about what I think we should be looking for in a pastor, you know, an executive leader, you know, someone who takes control in any situation, one who always embodies a presence of, of calmness and control and all these things. Instead, we're just looking at the word. And can I tell you, it's that often as pastors begin to do a good job, especially in the realm of preaching, that they can become conceited. And can I tell you how conceit actually looks? It actually looks like Monday through Friday, how a pastor prepares. That's how conceit actually gets manifest. You see, I can act like I'm not conceited. That when you come and say, man, Chad, that was an incredible sermon. I say, oh, thank you, you know, to God be the glory. You know, I can say that and give good lip service like I'm just you know, really a humble person and all that kind of stuff. But conceit looks like I don't really need to prepare for this. I don't really need to pray in preparation for this time. Uh, you know, that Monday through Friday, during the work week, that that's where conceit gets revealed. And that's, an, uh, and that's an honest confession of a pastor that at times I have become conceited and I've prayed little in preparation for messages and I've prepared little. I've, I've just leaned into a giftedness maybe to stand before an audience and talk rather than doing the hard work of preparation, of actually looking at the, at the words and studying and doing all of the work that is required. But then second, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace in the, in the devil's trap, hypocrisy. Can I tell you one thing that no pastor search committee has probably ever done is gone to the neighbor of a person they were considering as their pastor and said, what do you think about Chad? Your neighbor. Oh, I, I don't even know him. Hmm. I bet nobody, no pastor search committee, but hey, you know, like it, this is just a freebie for anybody that ever watches. You know, like uh, if you're ever on a pastor search committee, then you probably ought to talk to the neighbors of that person. 
You probably ought to talk to the coworkers. You probably ought to talk to like some distant family members and say, yeah, what do you think about this person? One of the things I love, we've been working with a, a company called Oxano and, and, and there's been a, a consultant, a, a guy that's been coming in and helping us to work on just real clarity with our, our mission and our vision and our strategy and our values and these sort of things. His name is Brian Rose. And I love Brian because every time he comes into town, we'll usually go somewhere right around here to go grab a bite of lunch before, before a team of volunteers goes into a six-hour meeting once a month. I mean, six hours of working on this stuff and doing this, this really diligent work. We'll go around and inevitably, inevitably, every time we've gone out, we're walking down the street and Brian will say, how are you doing? Hey, you know that church over there, First Baptist New Orleans? He's like, what do you think of it? He'll just ask people. He'll ask our waiter or waitress. He'll be like, hey, you know, like I'm, uh, uh, he's with First Baptist New Orleans. Do you know that church? What, what do you think of, what, what's the reputation of that church in this community? He'll ask him that. And can I tell you, a lot of times people are like, I, I don't even know what you're about. There's a church over there? You know, it's amazing, right? I mean, because for us, it's like, we're off the interstate. I mean, you can see us, you know? In fact, one of my neighbors, when I asked him the same question, he was like, oh, the missile silo. I was like, the missile silo? I was like, it does look like a missile silo. I was like, he's right, you know? And so it's one of those, because our steeple is offset. He was like, oh yeah, yeah, the missile silo. And I was like, well, yeah, the missile silo. Do you know anything about the church? He was like, uh, not really. Reputation with outsiders does matter. You say, well, Chad, I thought that it didn't matter. You know, like that we're supposed to be, it does matter. But can I tell you that in, in a culture that's increasingly maybe opposed to some of the biblical norms that we see in Scripture, there may be now this sort of disgrace that Christ himself experienced just for saying the truth. So that we have to hold that intention that, that just because you maybe have you know, a neighbor that's living in a lifestyle that you would say, you know, I don't believe that that's God's design whether it's just cohabitation or same-sex relationship or something like that, they may say, well, oh, if you don't agree with that, then you're a bad kind of person. So there's become a new social definition of what a good kind of person is. And, and, and so we have to be cognizant of that. But there ought to be this awareness and this kindness that manifests the life of a pastor, not only in the pulpit and not only on a Sunday morning, but in this neighborhood and where he lives and those he works with. Character, conduct, care, and caution. These things ought to manifest the life of any pastor. But can I tell you, one of the things I think that we often overlook is right there at the beginning of the passage is it says, anyone that desires, anyone that aspires to be an overseer desires a noble work. One of the things I love about the churches that I see that have a, a plurality of elders. And you say, what is a plurality of elders? That, that's where you have multiple pastors that are caring for a church. Is that many times in those contexts where there's a plurality of elders, there are often those who are in other occupations than just being a full-time pastor. It's a businessman or an attorney or a doctor or a teacher or someone that has a trade skill. It's, it's just these godly men who desire, who aspire to be an overseer, to care for God's church, and that they are laboring with those that maybe are devoting themselves to the full-time preaching and teaching and leadership of God's church and in God's word, them laboring together. And so I wonder today if there would be those in this room 
that there would be maybe some, some men in particular in this room that right now are saying, man, I, can't, I just can't imagine leaving my occupation, leaving my profession. I just really love what I do, but I can't deny that there is a desire, a love to do more in the church of God, that to serve as a pastor. Man, I would love that, but I just, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this occupation. Hear the word of the Lord. Anyone that aspires, that desires to be an overseer, desires a noble work, desires a noble work. I would rather us as a church explore what does it look like for those that are not only called to be a full-time pastor, but those that desire this noble work to be able to, to come into that space and to serve in that way for the benefit of this body. Many times we look at different forms of church government and it scares us. And we say, oh, I don't know, it seems like a lot of power condensed in one group and those sort of things. Did you see that in this passage? I didn't. What I saw was the kind of godly man like Fred Luter, the kind of godly care like I see in Bob Moore on display. What I saw was something that is the kind of thing that I want to, the kind of person that I want to fix my eyes on and being just like them. And that's what every church needs to thrive. And so today, I'm gonna to ask you just to consider, just to enter into this space of just saying, God, today we wanna to pray for our pastor. Maybe you're one of those guests that's from another church and you just wanna take a moment. If I wanna encourage you, pray for your pastor. Pray this passage. Pray that they would be all of these things in accordance with God's word. But I want us to pray also for the pastors of this church. And that this would be a church that has a biblically thriving servant leadership that we need of overseers and pastors and that God would raise up more. That God would raise up more. That God would call out the call to serve in this capacity. Will you pray with me? God, today, I thank you for your word and how it puts in such beautiful clarity the kind of life that is to be present in the life of an overseer, an elder or a pastor. Because Lord, we know that that is how you've ordained your church to be led. through the teaching and the preaching of your word through these godly examples who are godly, not just one day a week, but they're godly in the home, they're godly in their neighborhood. And so Lord, today we pray, God, today I pray for the pastors and the churches in our city. I pray that every pastor in our city, that they would be in accordance with your word that they would be godly pastors who are godly of character, godly of conduct, godly of their care for their family and for the church of God, and also godly in their caution against things that can creep in and make our lives unfruitful. I pray the same for the pastors of this church. And Lord, I pray for those today that you are calling God to pursue this noble work. Lord, forgive us for some of the structures that we've built that have kept the called from answering the call. But Lord, instead, we just pray that if it is your will, that you would stir up that individual, Father, that man to be an overseer in your church. And we pray this for God's glory. Amen. We invite everyone to stand. We're gonna sing a song of response before we enter into a time of fellowship. But if you're here today and you just need to pray, one of the ways that we respond with a passage like this is in prayer. Because a pastor is to be an example to the flock. In other words, everything that I just said is to be characteristic of your life as well. And so there may have been a place 
that was talked about today where you said, that's a part of my life that is not in accordance with God's word. I invite you to maybe leave your seat and just come and kneel at these steps and spend time in prayer. You may need to come in to pray with a pastor to say, I just need someone to pray for me because of an especially difficult time that I'm going through. However you need to respond, I invite you to respond and worship in this moment.